Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on uh, where you're watching this from. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to our monthly series, a U.S. politics and policy web series, a review from, from Australia, uh, a joint initiative of the Perth U.S. Asia Center here at the University of Western Australia uh, and the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Uh, this is something we've, we've done for getting close to a year now with a slight adjustment in the new year to focus not just on elections, but the broader policy implications that have, have a real meaning for us here in Australia and for our region writ large. It's always a pleasure uh, to do this together with my partner in crime, uh, the CEO of, of the United States Studies Center at the University of C uh, Sydney, Professor Simon Jackman. Simon, thank you as always for joining us. Our pleasure, Gordon. Always a pleasure to be collaborating with uh, you guys and the team out in Perth. And uh, especially I'll let you introduce our guests. It's a, it's a real treat that we're working together uh, with, with Zoe Daniel today. It is indeed. Zoe has actually joined our program in, in the past uh, with the difficult task of kind of moderating a, a rather ribald discussion with you and, and Mark Texter and, my, and myself. <laughs> uh, but this time uh, we're delighted to have as a special guest today, uh, Zoe Daniel, a three-time foreign correspondent. Uh, she was the ABC Bureau Chief in Washington, D.C. from 2015 through 2019. She's previously a Bureau Chief in Southeast Asia and Africa as well. Uh, her book, Storyteller, is probably one of the most gripping accounts of, of the role of a foreign correspondent, particularly given the, uh, the, the variety of places in which you serve. So at some point, we're going to have to ask you to compare uh, your tenure in Washington during that particular era with your tenure in, 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 uh, in Southeast Asia and in Africa as well. Uh, but the reason we're especially delighted to have Zoe join us today is that just this week, she has published a book with Roscoe Whelan called Greetings from Trumpland. And so much of the conversation that we are having today is, of course, focused on the Biden administration and a fundamentally changed Washington, D.C., post-election, post-inauguration. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, we are reminded on almost every issue that we're going to address that there's a, a ongoing question about um, uh, the people who voted for Donald Trump, Donald Trump himself, the supporters of Trump. And so as Zoe described it so well, uh, greetings from Trump land. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us today and your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Well, I think taking advantage of having you with us, I'll, I'll kick off the conversation with, with a, a, a question to you. Um, you start off your book noting that to reject Trump as an anomaly or a blip in the political landscape would be remiss. You say to ignore his huge supporter base would be naive. Well, in this last week alone, we've seen two important indicators of that conclusion. Uh, there was the CPAC conference, the, the Conservative Political Action Committee, if I'm correct, conference, which was uh, at the first post-presidency major speech that Donald Trump gave. Um, that gave us a chance to assess Trump land in, in the new era. And it, there was a remarkable occurrence just this week. Uh, for those of our viewers who don't know, uh, the 4th of March was traditionally the day U.S. presidents were inaugurated. So there was, among Trump supporters, uh, this theory uh, that th on that day he would be reinstated to the presidency. Uh, and it was a, a serious enough of a threat uh, that the U.S. intelligence community uh, and the FBI themselves made specific warnings about it, and Congress decided not to sit. This was last night. So I'm curious, Zoe, if you'd help us understand, although you're not there, you're in Melbourne, uh, Washington, D.C. today through the prism of, of the wonderful book. And again, the book is Greetings from Trump Land. Both Simon and I have got copies there <laughs> flanking us in the background. Uh, a fantastic read. I described it as, as something akin to a, a, a PTSD flashback because it seems a little bit too soon to delve back into it, but remarkably insightful. So thank you. Let me turn to you for your initial assessment, assessment of where we are today. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's two things that you've raised there, Gordon, CPAC and also the 4th of March and what both of those things say about Donald Trump and whether he's truly gone away. And, you know, as you sort of intimated, the book makes uncomfortable reading on that front because plainly he hasn't. Uh, CPAC proved unequivocally that Donald Trump has not been cancelled by the Republican Party, that the cult of personality continues. Uh, everyone would have seen 
those shots of the crowd standing and applauding him and the response on social media as well, although obviously there was some negative reaction, but there was also an avalanche of positive reaction from people saying, yes, he's back. Uh, this is no surprise to me. The book that Roscoe and I have written really is based around our travels around the US in four years there. I went to something like 44 states and much of the time that we spent there, uh, I spent in the so-called flyover states or the inland states uh, talking to people who voted for Donald Trump. So the book sort of attempts to set out just what motivated those people and who they are. And I'm not talking about the people on the fringes, you know, the horned men who stormed the Capitol at, at the start of January. I'm talking about those ordinary Americans who were looking for something different in this renegade politician, this anti-establishment person. Uh, and those people, when they saw him step up at CPAC, uh, were ecstatic and uh, had probably just been sitting biding their time thinking, well, when is he going to pop up again and in what form? Uh, fully clear that he had not just disappeared. Uh, and then the second aspect obviously is that concern among authorities that he hasn't gone away either uh, and the security reaction that you've talked about in regard to March 4th Thankfully, uh, it doesn't seem to have come to pass that there have been huge crowds or, or violent protests on the streets in DC. But in my mind, that's partly because these particular groups aren't going to come out when they're expected to. Uh, what happened on January 6 happened in part because there was a lack of preparation or expectation around what they could achieve if they really pushed hard uh, against those democratic structures. Uh, so, you know, when everyone's set and ready for them to pop up, they're going to stay away until they find another opportunity. That makes uh, perfect sense. Uh, Simon, um, given your particular expertise on polling, I'm wondering if I could draw out one aspect of what happened at CPAC. I, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, uh, article just yesterday that indicated a straw poll done among attendees of CPAC uh, found that only 68%, and I say only because it seems kind of strange in this context, of those attendees, uh, you know, wanted Donald Trump to run for president again. And then an even smaller number, only 55% said they would support him as the nominee in 2024, uh, which is a more specific question when it, you'd have to compare it obviously with, with other alternatives. So on, on, on the one hand, uh, there's that, that that rapturous kind of support that Zoe talked about. But when you get down to, to brass tacks, it's pretty remarkable that that type of an internal straw poll might have showed something a little bit different. I'm curious as to your take from CPAC um, and, and the trends that Zoe has so skillfully laid out. Sure, sure, Gordon. And and then I want to ask Zoe a question or two. Yeah, of course, point, jump right in. But, but, but thank you, but thank you. Um, look, um. It's a weird number, isn't it, Gordon? As you question, as you said in the question, on the one hand, it sounds like a high number, on the but on the other hand, it's a low number. Let's deal with the, the high part, first of all. Who is Donald Trump? Donald Trump is a losing one-term US president. And yet, <laughs> right, you go to CPAC and 55% of those attending say they'd vote for him and 65% um, want to see him run again. That's unheard of. In, in like, when did that Jimmy Carter showing up? Like, just please go away quietly. That's typically what happens to losing first term US presidents. It's one of the greatest humiliations um, that can befall uh, someone that's ever made it to, to the big chair uh, uh, behind the resolute desk and then to lose it, um, not be reelected. Typically your party is quite happy, thanks very much with you uh, going quietly off into the sunset uh, or whatever it might be. Um, Donald Trump was never going to do that. And moreover, a huge part of the Republican base does not want him to do so. Um, so, so that's the, the, why it's a big number and, and why we ought to be surprised and like just blown away by it, frankly. On the other hand, expectations are so high and there is this, you know, I think compelling and, and there's a lot of truth to it narrative um, about how Donald Trump owns the Republican Party, um, I think that's that, that is in the main uh, true, 
comma, but, and the comma, but, is that not only did the Republicans lose the White House under Donald Trump, but they lost the House of Representatives on the back of record high turnout in the 2018 midterms. And, and so he was in the country uh, for, for, for those midterm elections. And, and then moreover, um, they lost the Senate, as it turns out, after the Georgia runoffs, where Trump injected himself deeply and personally into those two pivotal Senate contests that saw a, a, a deep, you know, state of the former Confederacy, Georgia, the gone the wind state, um, um, deliver um, uh, two Democrats um, uh, uh, to the Senate and, and kind of even unlikely Democrats, um, uh, an African-American and, and, and a Jewish American um, 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 to, the, to the Senate. Um, and I think if you're Mitch McConnell, um, you're thinking a uh, Trump that is front and center of the Republican party it cuts both ways. And I think recent electoral history in the United States shows it cuts more, it's more a net negative than a net positive, right? Um, that Trump is a turnout machine for the Republican base, but it turns out he's an even bigger turnout machine for the Democratic base. And, and, to the, and if you're the Democrats, you would love to see Donald Trump remain front and center uh, in American politics on the margin. Um, on the margin, I think, from a pure sort of Machiavellian electoral calculus perspective. Um, and, and, and moreover, even if you're not Mitch McConnell, but if you're Ted Cruz or you're Josh Hawley or you're Marco Rubio and you might like to run for president, you kind of wish this guy would not be a candidate himself. And indeed, I think that's what's, that'll be the interesting dynamic, Gordon, over the next two years. Who will put forward a claim to being the intellectual, emotional inheritor of the Trump legacy policy-wise, its mindset, um, uh, its views about policy uh, and America's role in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, but without the baggage necessarily uh, of Trump. Uh, and I think that's what it's going to cash out the beat I remain unconvinced that Trump will actually run. I think he will delight in keeping us all guessing. Um, and, and, and if nothing else, make it a monetization and influence play um, consistent with sort of the way he makes money over his career. But I, I am far from convinced uh, he will actually be on the ballot um, in Republican primaries or even um, in, in the general in, in 24. So in this conversation, we want to obviously make the transition and move on and talk about the COVID response or the COVID relief bill, the Biden cabinet, et cetera. But there's a couple of other things I want to tease out first. And Zoe, based on, on Simon's comment, I wonder if I might come back to you. There seemed to be a brief moment uh, after the horrific events of the 6th of January where there was the potential for a split in the Republican Party, uh, Trump maybe forming his own party, or at least an, a, a large number of elected Republicans distancing themselves from the president. Um, what we saw at CPAC was with very few exceptions, them once again, kissing the ring, coming back. Can you help us understand that dynamic? And then Simon, I'll, I'll let you in turn round back to Zoe with a couple of questions you've got before we move on. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack in what Simon said and, you know, yeah, permit sorry. me to <laughs> permit me to be, you know, quite conflicting in what I'm about to say, because, you know, there's several ways of interpreting it. One thing that I would say about those numbers, the 68%, the 55% is, okay, it's a CPAC straw poll. Who's at CPAC? Like, okay, I've seen it sort of described as a Trump oriented crowd, but in my mind, the sort of archetypal Trump supporter is not at CPAC. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like those numbers, and we know it's an unscientific poll anyway, mm. are sort of quite wobbly. And that if you went out into the back uh, Western Pennsylvania or Ohio or whatever and conducted the same straw poll, you might get a very different sort of percentage. Um, secondly, one thing that's happened, as we know, over the last couple of months is that Donald Trump's had his megaphone taken away in the form of his uncurated Twitter feed. So he's been kind of in no man's land and he's just he's sort of burst back onto the scene. One thing that I found 
quite interesting in CPAC was that I think only Fox ran the speech live. Um, and, you know, this is a reflection of the US television networks trying to take a bit more control around, you know, uncurate, uh, uncurated, uh, manipulative uh, untruths uh, being spouted on their networks. But that said, 31 million people watched the speech live on social media. Um, so people were able to find it and people were able to watch it. So in terms of Donald Trump going forward, it, he will be thinking, how am I going to get my message out if I can't do it on Twitter and, and what, what are my options? Um, and, and it sort of says, well, it doesn't really matter if TV networks don't air him live as they were throughout 2015, 2016, 2017, just giving him this huge soapbox. Um, perhaps he doesn't need that if he finds other ways. And then the, the third thing is that split in the Republican Party. And, you know, this fact that you saw huge antagonism towards him before he was nominated in 2016, then you saw a lot of those antagonists swallow their scruples and come in behind him and then fall away from him again because of all of the manipulation around the result of the election and what happened on January 6, and now come back in behind him again at this moment because they know they need to try to keep that base. I mean, in a way, I feel like this whole conversation about will Donald Trump start a new political party or not? And, you know, he, he's like a fisherman with a line on that. Like, oh, maybe I'll do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Oh, maybe I'll do that. You know, just testing the reaction. Do I have enough support? No, I probably don't. I need to keep the Republican Party together. But then what does that mean for moderate Republicans um, those who want to move forward without Donald Trump um, and the fact that not only do you have a, a divided America where, you know, there are a huge number of um, Democrats and independents and people who just don't vote who are massively angry with not only Donald Trump but his supporters for sort of shelving so many of their ethics to vote for him for the sake of their own progress in various ways and now sort of say, well, why should we even deal with you? We're not even going to interact with you at all. You're just not worth it. So you've got that sort of happening on a national level, but you've also got that happening within the party itself. Uh, and it's a party that need, needs to keep that 74, 75 million plus base as well as keep it, it's it's more traditional uh, base of support. I, I see very much that the, the GOP is at a hugely pivotal moment in its decision-making around where to go from here. And just finally, you know, circling back to the poll very quickly, I mean, you know, it was a straw poll and I think only three people kind of registered and Trump was 55 and the next one down was 21 and the third one down was four. So even though it was only kind of just over the 50, it was still way ahead of any other option. So it's a question of, well, if you're not going to go with Trump in 2024, who is it? Who, who inspires people enough? You, you know, for me, if I can just chime in on here before going to you, Simon, of all the polls that we've seen, the one that's probably the most interesting in terms of what it says about where the Republican Party today was the blind vote that was held over whether or not Liz Cheney should maintain her position as the third yeah. in command, you know, Republican whip in the House of Representatives and the minority whip. Uh, and the reason that was so interesting is because on the one hand, it was just shocking that so few Republicans voted for impeachment. Uh, it is equally kind of shocking that so many of the Republicans that even after January 6th expressed their, you know, their, shall we say, extreme concern about what uh, Donald Trump did in his role in the insurrection have all now come back and kissed the ring, but that's not necessarily an indication of where they are. And the Liz Cheney vote, which is, I think it was 67, 33 or something, you know, almost two thirds, a little bit over two thirds of, of, of Republicans voted to keep her on board, even though she voted for impeachment. Uh, it, it tells you two things. Number one, that, you know, there's probably two thirds of the Republican party who aren't necessarily Trumpist at heart, at least elected Republicans, mm -hmm. but also that one third are. And so if you're a Republican, again, once again, kissing the ring, 
It's not that you're necessarily supportive of these ideas, it's that you recognize that without them, without those from Trump land, to go back to your book, they cannot win a national election or state election. So it's a, it's a really interesting uh, you know, challenge that the party is facing right now. Simon, before we move on, let's go back to you for some comments. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, um, we're just going to say, without the voters from Trump land, you can't win your primary. Um, which is the first thing you've got to win. But with the voters from Trump land, you may lose the general, um, depending on where you are, right? Um, that's not the case in, um, in Texas, at least so far. Turns out it is the case in Georgia. Um, <laughs> um, and, and maybe Stacey Abrams, um, you know, has as much credit to claim there as, as sort of the uh, counter mobilization effects of Donald Trump, but um, but this is the dilemma. Um, these Republican members of Congress, who were privately and in many cases publicly outraged by January 6, went home that weekend and got a big dose of reality that their the people they're going to vote in their primary elections were were still with Trump in spite of what. Had happened to them and their colleagues and their staff uh, up on up and, and and the Capitol Police, um, and and so that moment lasted, by my count, 48, 72 hours. It's a Mitch McConnell who's towards the end of his political career and has just been elected to a six-year term in the Senate that can afford to stand up in the well of the United States Senate and and criticise Trump, but would not vote. <laughs> Uh, to convict uh, and indeed voted um, with the motion um, purporting to uh, rule the trial as unconstitutional to begin with. So um, so it, it's very mixed business. Um, I want to ask Zoe um, a really different sort of question. Um, the book is written in the present tense. It's fantastic. Um, um, it's a... <clears throat> Reminded me of um, Damon Runyon, who um, chronicled sort of the, the golden years of New York um, in the 1920s and 30s um, and 40s um, in this very journalistic, you are there, snappy, that the present tense takes you into. Uh, and I'm, I've just got to ask Zoe, apart from the content, <laughs> just this this particular choice you've made or, or you and Roscoe have made as authors, um, clearly that's a choice, right? And I just wonder if you could just talk us through it and how it might connect up with your journalistic. So where's that coming from? Um, yeah. Storytelling and whatnot, yeah. Well, it's just, uh, look, the book, it, it's kind of a hybrid um, book because it, it's a book about political science and, and sort of sociology in a way um, and there's a lot of dense subject matter in there I mean we talk about trade with China we talk about foreign policy we talk about Black Lives Matter we talk about Me Too um, and, and all the things you know fake news but it, it's woven largely through my experiences of traveling yeah. around the US and the people that I met and I guess the aspiration is that although there, there's some really complicated things to digest within the book, that it, it's supposed to be immersive. It, it's like you're with me. Um, yes. And we, you know, without giving too much away, but obviously we sort of start at the end in a sense because of the timing of the release of the book. So, and everyone knows what happened, so it's no mystery. Um, but then we go back to me covering the 2016 campaign and the sort of the night before the election um, when it so happens that I was at Independence Hall with the Obamas and the Clintons um, wow. and Bob Dylan and all sorts of people uh, with thousands and thousands of people in, in Philly. Um, and so it's like, be here with me and then let's take this journey together um, to meet these people and to try to understand their position. And, you know, as I sort of alluded to at the start of this conversation, 
conversation. It, it's not a comfortable read. You know, if you're a Trump, no. Trump supporter, it's going to infuriate you. If you really dislike Donald Trump, it's going to infuriate you. <laughs> you know, if you're a moderate Republican, you're going to be like, ah! if you're a Democrat, you'll be like, what are you accusing us of? But that's kind of the point. I mean, you know, we're not in happy times here. Um, and I think, you know, just to sort of go down the rabbit hole of we find it very difficult to actually talk to people who have opposing point of views to us. And obviously, you know, during that posting, four-year posting, I spent a long time talking to people from all sorts of different political perspectives, white supremacists among them and others. These are difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of having it in, in present tense in the first person is like, okay, you're here with me. This is happening around us and it, it does make it um i think more pacey um and, a, and more immersive and a bit more accessible um because of that i think it's a fantastic choice uh one i'm envious of the the kind of writing i do as a professor or a think tanker i don't that's not really available to me it was great to, to see it though what is available to me though is um a lot of survey data uh that we're going to be releasing uh, with the Perth US Asian Centre on March 16 in Canberra, Zoe. And, and one of the things that comes through in the data dovetails with something you were just talking about. I want to draw you out on, um, and it's all through the book and, and indeed underscored in that quick pricey you just gave. Um, and that is this phenomenon that Australians have no real experience of, of negative partisanship. And by that, I mean... To be a partisan means you identify with a political grouping, um, a party typically, and, and you think, I am a liberal person, I'm a Labor person, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Green, I'm a Republican, I am. But in addition now, negative partisanship, which is so apparent in the United States, and I really don't like, if I'm a Republican, Democrats, or if I'm a Democrat, I really don't like people in the, now, we as we often do at the US Study Center, we will take a measurement of that in the United States and to give it some context, put it up alongside a measurement from Australia. You do not see that in Australian data, right? So coalition supporters in Australia give their party a ranking of a score of about 80 on a zero to 100 cold to hot warm scale. They give the Labor Party a score of 48. <laughs> okay. Republicans give Democrats a score of five, mm. right? And, and I'm just, could you, for an Australian audience, Zoe, just without giving too much away about the book, your experience with, I mean, this January 6th, I suppose, but, but your experience on the trail and perhaps not in DC out there in, in flyover land of instances or manifestations of that, again, a phenomenon we don't see yet, thankfully, I think in Australia, mm. a negative partisanship. Yeah, well, there was a moment um, on election night, actually, I was at Hillary Clinton's glass ceilinged venue and when it became very apparent that she'd lost the election in the early hours of the morning, that there were people sort of lying around on the floor in tears and such and I was interviewing some of these people about their reaction and one man who was uh, visibly emotional, said to me, you know, I just don't understand who these people are. I feel like our country's been taken over by aliens. And I said to him, well, have you ever been to Kentucky, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, any of these um, places that are outside your comfort zone? And he said, oh, no, no, I'm a New Yorker. You know, if I travel, I go overseas or I go to California. And it, it's kind of emblematic of... Um, not only an inability of people to talk to each other, but a lack of interest in doing that. And, you know, it goes, you know, fundamentally against the grain for me as a journalist, because I'm often sort of talking to people who have different perspectives. But unfortunately, I think that we are starting to increasingly see that in Australia. And I think that you've mm. seen that during the um, unfolding of coronavirus, where you've suddenly seen this really quite toxic state-state rivalry going on. Like, oh, we're managing it better than you. You know, Sydney's better at it than Melbourne, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, I think it's something to keep a close eye on. But, but I also think that the one thing that's really different in the US that, again, is developing more and more in Australia is partisan media. 
And the, the thing with the US media market is that it's big enough that you can have enough critical mass in your audience speaking only one perspective. And, you know, whereas here, if you turn on the television or, or read a newspaper or read something online, you'll get a range of perspectives. Some of it will lean left or right, but you'll get a sense of other perspectives. In the US, you just consume what you already believe. And then, you know, when it comes to the, the anger that Donald Trump deliberately fanned, that level of media partisanship uh, just increases that sense of I'm right, everyone else is wrong. And, you know, I know um, Gordon wants to get on to talking about Biden. And I think that, you know, in my mind, what's really key for the Biden administration is to be very generous and to try to uh, step into having conversations with those people on the margins uh, that Donald Trump has kind of mobilised. Um, because if you end up with a sort of perspective of smugness along the lines of, you guys voted this crazy guy in, you're all, you know, bad people, therefore we don't want to deal with you, then all that does is continue to push those groups further and further apart. And then you end up with people, you know, not watching even mainstream right-wing media, but going to the likes of QAnon and, you know, uh, very sort of fringe media outlets for their information. So, Zoe, that's a, a wonderful transition uh, to talking about some developments, you know, COVID, you know, the relief bill, uh, the Biden cabinet, et cetera. Uh, and there's a quote that I pulled from your book, which I found kind of makes that transition perfectly. You wrote, Joe Biden is preaching to the converted and the words will only be affected if they reach the ears of the disenfranchised. Um, and so let's, let's start off with one area where uh, perhaps it might be reaching, we'll see, uh, and that's COVID, a COVID response. Um, we, we, we've seen now the US has done, I think, 54 million vaccinations. Uh, the relatively good news in the fact that there was a, originally an anticipation that they would have enough doses for the adult population in the US by the end of July. This week, the president announced that that had been moved up to the end of May. Equally good news that Johnson & Johnson and Merck are working together with a third variant in, in terms of the vaccines available. So it seems there's going to be some progress on that front. Although to go back to the, the conversation thus far, there's also some countervailing trends, right? You have Florida and Texas most prominently, you know, very early on saying, okay, now it's time to, to remove our mask mandates. Uh, we've had to go to no one less than Dolly Parton, you know, to, to make the case that people need to get that vaccine done. And, and they're trying to reach the ears of the disenfranchised who are hearing a very different story. So I'm wondering um, if we, we start with you again, Zoe, then go back to Simon, your take on the COVID response and its likely impact uh, on the U.S. more broadly, but also on Trump land. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, uh, well, it's something to ponder is, how long does the success of a COVID response, assuming everyone is vaccinated by mid-year, last? Does that last to the midterms? That sort of mm. Joe did a good job sort of vibe? Um, or in this incredibly fast-moving world that we have now, you know, will COVID already be a distant memory by the time we get to the end of 2022? You know, it, it's like, how long does that, that kind of stick for? Um, the second thing is, you know, already with the COVID relief bill, you've seen the, the pre-existing partisanship just pop up straight away. The, the polling, Simon might have something to say, but the polling seems to indicate that the population is broadly uh, favourable towards COVID relief, yet in the halls of Congress, this is fodder for an argument because other things that have been inserted to, into that bill, like a minimum wage and, and stuff like that. So already you end up with Republicans saying, no, we don't want it. Uh, the Biden administration saying, too bad, we're going forward with it anyway. And it's sort of automatic split, even though Joe Biden has been elected on this platform of let's unify and work together. Um, but, you know, as I've sort of written in large words on my notes here, what is the actual strategy to achieve unification? How do you actually do that when you have all these people on the fringes and then you've got a split Republican Party and all the things that we've already 
talked about. And then, you know, just popping up on CNN, for example, um, CPAC was described as liar palooza, um, <laughs> which kind of is, is, in my mind, is sort of emblematic of the, the way that the media um, kind of amps up that, that, those splits, those entrenched splits that not only exist, if you think, if you say, well, a government is representative, re- representative of its people, that, that's what's happening in the US. You've got, you know, this very divided population that, that can't kind of have a conversation to take each other forward. I have to say, as, as somebody who spent the better part of the last 30 years working on the Korean Peninsula, it was a bit jarring for me to hear you talk about, you know, the necessity of the United States having a unification strategy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Simon, over to you. Any thoughts that you've got on that, on that front? Yeah, Done. The, the stakes of, of COVID relief couldn't be higher for the United States, for the world, for Australian national interests, uh, and of course for the Biden presidency. Um, it's all about COVID. Um, if he is a success in getting this package through, um, if he hits those 100 million jabs in the first 100 days, if the US economy is recovering, um, his presidency will be judged almost solely on the back of that as a success. Um, if the package cannot get through the Senate for whatever reason, um, which I think is highly unlikely, a form of the package will get through, but, but the stakes couldn't be higher. And for that reason, I think it, they found a way to take the minimum wage out that, that um, uh, mansion of West Virginia, most conservative, Democratic senator. It's a 50-50 Senate. So that 50th Democrat on the left-right spectrum has immense power. Um, and um, so this was always going to get through. The only question is in what shape. Um, <clears throat> and they will declare victory. They have to. Um, the, 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 the Biden presidency turns on it. But much else does too, as I just alluded to. Um, the Australia uh, and needs and America with its mojo back, number one, not just in a soft power sense of prestige and a self-confident um, United States governed by a president that has a lot of political capital at home. All those are really important uh, for, for the uh, view of the United States as a competent power, but also the economic recovery uh, is important in its own right uh, as a way of, of getting the US back on a pathway to, to generate the spending it needs to realize the ambitions it's got for competition and manage decoupling with China, all of that stuff um, in the foreign policy, defense security realm, um, that where Australian equities are, are playing and, and front and center. Um, all that is backed up behind um, COVID recovery as well. So the stakes just couldn't be higher. Uh, they're, they're unfathomably high. And I think uh, too big to fail almost comes to mind. They will, they will find a way to get this through the Senate. But I'm very pessimistic about much else getting through. Um, um, I, I think Republicans, and, and this is picking up on Zoe's observation, Republicans learned from 1994 and from 2010 um, that there's little downside politically to opposing, 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 opposing. Um, you hold back the policy advances that the Democrats wanted and 94 was the midterm after Bill Clinton's election in 92 and 2010 was the midterm after Barack Obama. The parallels, as we say in this report, we're going to release in Canberra on March 16th. There are many, many parallels with 2008, the crisis the United States was in after the great um, uh, recession. Biden was Obama's vice president. And I think the lesson learned is Republicans are going to give you nothing. So you just have to go and go hard while you can. And because um, you'll pay policy compromise, it's just bad policy from their perspective. And there was no political upside at the end of the day for Democrats at the 2010 midterms. So they're going hard on COVID. They found a way to get it through as a budget act so they don't have to get 60 votes. But they have to get 50 and so the Senate parliamentarian, I think, very helpfully said that minimum wage can't be part of COVID relief. I think that's a much easier package now for 50 Democrats to vote for. 
That said, um, they are looking and buying some insurance. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to have a Mitt Romney boat or a Susan Collins boat, you know, one, the most left-leaning or moderate, if you will, Republican or two of them. There's a little bit of insurance um, in case they do lose um, in the, at, on the on final passage um, or on some key amendments. And again, that has to be managed too. You'd really love that to come up for a straight up or down vote, uh, take, take it or leave it offer for those 50 Democrats uh, and hold the party together. But, but it exposes this whole thing, just how delicate uh, Congress is at the moment and, and the, just the severe constraints that's going to put on other elements um, of, of democratic legislative ambition right now. I think everybody's expectations about what might be possible, they have to be tempered. I would probably add uh, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski to that list. Murkowski. Although, I, I do, again, I do find it a bit striking that you would describe Mitt Romney, who as the Republican presidential candidate described himself as severely conservative, is now one who seemed to be among the- He, he voted for conviction twice. Uh, yeah. I get it. It's just It just tells you where we are. Uh, yeah. If I can tie two strands of this conversation together, uh, uh, your comments that Biden was vice president in 2008, that they kind of learned the lessons of that. And, and Zoe's very insightful notion that if, if this is all just about the vaccination, that probably won't be enough, which is why mm -hmm. I do think there's such an intense focus on the COVID relief bill itself, because yeah. there needs to be that big economic boost that would carry it forward. And obviously success will make a difference. Um, let's talk about the ability of the, the administration to do that. And that's their cabinet. Uh, of the 16 cabinet level positions, uh, I think there, there has, been all but six now confirmed. Uh, 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 so it's it's uh, oh, actually I think there was 11, 11 of the of the sixteen have been confirmed, um, but at a pace much slower than normal. Uh, hmm. um, obviously, impeachment had something to do with that in terms of process. Um, I'm kind of would like to get your assessment. Maybe we'll start with you on this one, Simon. Um, obviously, the, the for an Australian perspective, the key posts of defense. Of, of, of state, of treasury went quickly. There was very quick outreach to Australia from those positions. Mm -hmm. uh, the vice president herself just had, by all accounts, what was a very good conversation with our prime minister yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, would mm -hmm. you give your assessment of the Biden cabinet, its rollout and the manpower they've got to address these problems that you so sure. eloquently uh, laid out? Uh, uh, agreed um, with your assessment on the pace, but that's probably more to do with the Senate and its calendar and how delicate things are up there um, uh, than, it, than it is with the people. And the people who have been nominated are, are uniformly really impressive. Um, um, we, we did a lunch with Joe Hockey here in Sydney a couple of days ago. He's on his way back to the States next week. So we, we did a check-in with, with Joe, who's gracious to give us an hour of his time. And, and so I'm, I'm throwing Joe under the bus with this quote, but Joe said, um, uh, uh, who would have thought that there's no compromise between diversity and quality? I go, well, well, good on you, Joe. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll lay that one at your feet, mate. Um, but it, but, it's, a, but it's, it, it's true. Um, um, it's a diverse group as Biden promised it would be. Um, um, and, and, and the quality is, is, is superb. There are women serving as secretary of the treasury um, as um, um, uh, director of national intelligence, some really key posts have been have been filled by women. We have an African American as the Secretary of Defense. Um, um, the Blinken Secretary of State um, announcement, um, I think, has been really well received around the world, but especially here in Australia. And every speech is just so polished and and perfectly weighted and calibrated. Uh, I think doing a really sterling job of articulating sort of a forthrightness with respect to China, um, but being very precise about what were the words from the most recent speech, uh, uh, collaboration with China when we can and confrontation when we must. Um, those are the words from Blinken's speech um, uh, yesterday. Um, the other thing is just the national security team um, uh, Gordon, Kurt Campbell as um, coordinator um, for um, Asian affairs. <clears throat> Indo-Pacific Czar, that's the term, Indo-Pacific yeah, Czar. Indo-Pacific Czar is the, is, the, is the shorthand. Um, 
uh, and Jake Sullivan as national security advisor, um, Australia, I, I think, couldn't have hoped for um, a better team in terms of the attention and mindfulness of Australia being on the front lines with respect to the big geostrategic issues confronting the Western democracies, if you will, um, at this time. Um, that's it's a strong outcome for Australia. Um, and um, look, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, I was going to also, um, uh, but the thought escapes me now because I've been talking on for too long. But, well, there, well, um, by, by and large, by and large, a, a set of folks that that w I think from from an Australian perspective, um, it's very hard to, to take issue with. Um, so Zoe, I want to go back to you on this. So thus far, of the 16 cabinet nominations, only one has been pulled, and that was Nir Tandon, who had been mm -hmm. nominated to, to be the, the head of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, and that obviously was over her mean tweets. And one would have think it, thought that if there was <laughs> one area, the bar might have been lowered in the United States over the last four years in political discourse, but obviously not. Clearly, that has something to do with it. Can you give us your assessment of, of what Simon was describing as uh, the, the difficulty of maneuvering these things through a 50-50 Senate? Well, I, uh, look, in regard to Neera Tandon, I find it absolutely extraordinary that she had to bow out because of the tone of her tweets, given the kind of tweeting that we've seen over the last five years. I mean, it is very interesting, isn't it, that um, when you're someone like Donald Trump, you can kind of say whatever you want and it just washes over. I mean, you know, that his line that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he'd get away with it is, is kind of true in that sense. Um, in regard to the Cabinet, uh, I agree with Simon that, you know, there's some incredible people in that group um, and if there have been hold-ups there through no fault of the Biden administration necessarily, uh, but that said, in the international crisis and national crisis that we're amid, um, those people really need to get in place and start working. And unfortunately, um, the rank-and-file voters um, outside DC won't consider all the reasons for the delays as as we all will. Uh, they'll just be thinking, what on earth are they doing and why don't they get it moving? Uh, and then when you see the COVID relief bill kind of mired in the Senate, and I, I'm in agreement with Simon that I'm sure it'll get through in some form, but, you know, today we have a demand that the entire bill get read um, which will delay everything by a couple of days, which, you know, I just think for the average person is um, a symbol of the way politics operates, that it's about politics and it's not about humanity and people. Um, and, I mean, there was a, an article floating around in the press which kind of set out the number of Americans who will die in the intervening period of COVID while that bill is being read not to say that if it went straight through those people would survive uh, but it, it just says something about where the sure. priorities lie now there's a bit of an imbalance politically there it, it, for republican messaging uh, one of the core anthems of, of, of being the inefficiencies or ineffectiveness of government uh, you know slowing down that process proves your point uh, and tearing things down is always a, a lot more difficult than building things up. And so one of the real challenges the Biden administration faces is they've got to prove that government can work, that it can do good things. Uh, and, and again, this is where I, I fully agree with Simon, that at least for this first year of the Biden presidency, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. If they don't get this right, um, then, then nothing else really matters in that, that, that process. I want to come back to another political trend uh, and go back to you again, Zoe. Uh, one of the, our listeners, our, our, our watchers right now, Robin McClellan, uh, questioned the, the use of the term disenfranchised in that little quote that I pulled from your, your, your book uh, and, and strongly indicated that obviously Trump voters weren't disenfranchised. They voted uh, in record droves. And so maybe it's just a bit of semantics, but we are now seeing a, a backlash to the efforts in, in my home state of Arizona, in Georgia, uh, in, in a whole spate of initiatives in Republican states to try to make voting more difficult. Uh, in fact, I, I read a report this morning uh, talking about how hyperbolic the Republican response to HR1 has been, you know, just because the, the fear is obviously the more people that vote, 
uh, you know, the more difficult it is for Republicans in those elections. And so there's a uh, even again, one of the things that was actually stunning to me this week was to see Mike Pence, the former vice president, now, a person who himself was was, you know, the target of, of President Trump's ire, who was in personal physical danger on January 6th, him come out and himself repeat a, a version of the big lie that one of the great tragedies of January 6th was that the violence on the Capitol interrupted the opportunity to have a discussion about election integrity. Uh, again, so I'm kind of curious as to your view of, of the next step of, and, and again, it does come from Trump land, those efforts to then make the voting process harder uh, rather than easier. And it seems to be there's a tension and a competition going on there. I'm curious as your take on it. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a tension and, and a competition there and, and it's nothing new, as we know. I mean, and I think in regard to Mike Pence, you know, he's executed some pretty interesting moral gymnastics over the last few years <laughs> to survive uh, being Donald Trump's vice president. But, you know, in regard to um, people being disenfranchised, you know, perhaps they're not in the true sense of the word disenfranchised now, uh, but they certainly felt disenfranchised back in 2015, 2016, when they kind of entered this fray. Um, and then in a sense, once they've entered the fray and had the power, then it becomes much harder for them to relinquish it again. Um, you know, I mean, maybe Simon's better to talk about th these issues around um, limitations on voting and all those sorts of things, like deliberate um, stifling of voting. But one thing that I think has become evident over the last few months is that sort of finally that that's been called out and exposed for what it is, even though everyone knew it was it had been happening for so long. Um, and it, it sort of came to the fore so that the average person has become much more aware of what manipulation is going on in the background there. Um, perhaps that was sort of one positive manifestation of Donald Trump calling into question the election process and the voting process in that there was a lot more focus on exactly what was going on. Um, and, you know, perhaps we'll see some real change in that regard. So, Simon, there is an argument to be made that the elections truly were unfair, that they were rigged, but they were rigged in favor <laughs> of Donald Trump and the Republicans. Uh, and there's obviously some, some very serious efforts ongoing to, to make that even more so to help perpetuate minority rule, if you will. You have spent a lot of your academic yeah. career working on these issues, including testifying uh, and gerrymandering in other cases. I wonder if you might give your take on this. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's pretty clear, and I've said this on previous webinars, Gordon, came up multiple times last year ahead of the election, in a way that Australians, I think, just in a regime of compulsory voting and within Australian Electoral Commission, um, that's largely un, you know, non-partisan, almost you know, completely non-partisan. Um, it's hard for Australians to recognise that the struggle for voting rights goes on in the United States, that it is something, although guaranteed constitutionally in the, in the United States Constitution and even in state constitutions, but just how much leeway states and counties have with the nitty gritty of voting, that is registering to vote, um, where you vote, um, the methods by which one votes, um, um, uh, all, of, all of that, there's one side of politics, you know, it's, uh, I don't think it's a controversial point to make. There's one side of American politics that wants to make that harder uh, for people. And there's another side of American politics that thinks voting should be easy. And again, it, it's so hard for Australians to understand this. Voting's compulsory here, so the government makes it easy. <laughs> um, um, you can vote anywhere, it's on a Saturday. Um, they set up things at the airport. Oh, you might be in a state, yeah, you know, in many parts of the United States, it's exactly the opposite. Um, you have to really struggle um, to um, get on the roll, um, to stay on the roll, to know where your polling place, and you have to go to your polling place on the day. Um, and, and it's just a remarkable development for a country that, that tells itself a story about liberty and equality before the law um, and being 
the greatest democracy on the planet, yet one of the most constitutive fundamental elements of democracy, that is participation in elections, that elections be free and fair, um, that that is so contested, so contested. And if anything, getting more contested and not less. Um, and it's, it's, it's been part of the United States at least since the Civil War, and many people would say, well, before that, but, but it, is the, it is in no small measure the, the, the 150 year echo of, of the Civil War, because it is the states of the former Confederacy where voter suppression um, um, is, is at its most profound. It is, it is uh, it's, it's the states of the former Confederacy that were on the front lines in the voting rights revolution of the 1960s, um, 50, 60 years ago now. And, and, and this struggle goes on with renewed passion and consequence today. And, and I just come back to the point that it takes many, many forms. There are lots of ways to play with the machinery of election. And it's meant to be opaque and difficult because keeping it away from popular understandings um, keeps it hard for people to get outraged about. Um, but again, one of the things about recent cycles is that I think the jig is increasingly up. People are seeing it um, increasingly for what it is, an attempt to put a big, not just a thumb on the scale, but perhaps an elbow on the electoral scale uh, in, in state after state and jurisdiction after jurisdiction. And if anything, I think it's starting to promote, and again, I come back to the remarkable effort by Stacey Abrams in, in the state of Georgia. Um, it is increasingly being translated as it did at various points in the 1960s as well, into a voter mobilization plus um, that precisely because they are trying to make it hard for us to vote, we will fight all the harder. And, and, and um, it's, it's just a remarkable thing to see um, so much conflict and energy about that most fundamental right that citizens have in a democracy and that is the right to vote. You know, that, that tension is gonna be one of the most important things to look at at the midterms coming up in just a year and a half, a uh, year, nine months, and, and then obviously in the next presidential election. If I could end, we just got about two minutes left, Zoe, with a kind of maybe final question for you. There's also this broader question of demographics, right? There's the old axiom that demography is destiny. Uh, and, and there are two ways to look at this. On the one hand, Trump land is so eloquently described, you know, put the, the largest number of votes ever for a Republican presidential candidate to Donald Trump this time. And yet there's also this narrative that as we saw in Arizona and Georgia and not quite yet in Texas, but maybe in North Carolina and South Carolina, there is this demographic shift taking place. And what we have seen is, is the, through the use of all these tools that Simon just laid out, the perpetuation or the extension of minority rule for longer than we would have had otherwise, but the change is coming. I'm curious as to your take on the big picture trajectory of American politics longer term. Well, I mean, as you've indicated, you know, there's, there's a huge demographic shift when it comes to racial diversity and, you know, traditional expectations around what will happen in particular states will change and are changing before our very eyes. I mean, that, that's, that's self-evident with, with the Latino vote, for example, the increasing number of African-Americans who are voting because of the, the things that Simon outlined. But I, I think the other thing that's really worth considering, and this is something from an Australian perspective too, is just how do you define uh, who are conservatives and who are progressives? You know, you have in both countries a, a situation where the working classes were the union workers who voted for either the Democrats or in, in Australia, the ALP. Increasingly, those people are now shifting across to, to vote for uh, conservative parties, feeling like they're better represented by parties who uh, have economic imperatives front of mind. And in part, I feel in Australia, and I think that it does have uh, similarities in the United States, that that's because the progressive parties have increasingly gravitated towards and seen an increase in their voter base in the big cities. So they find it very hard to define themselves. How does the Australian Labor Party, for example, which you know is loosely equivalent to, to the Democrats in a way, 
say the this is who we represent when its voter base is partly inner city hipsters uh, who live in the centre of Sydney and Melbourne and it, it are the professional classes, journalists, academics, teachers, lawyers and such, but also all of those union workers who, who still work in manufacturing industries and those sorts of things. And, and that's what's happening with the Democrats as well. And I feel, you know, we've talked a lot about today about this sort of split in the base of the Republican Party and who Republicans are. Well, who, who are Democrats? I mean, in terms of Democrat demographic shifts, as well as this sort of cultural racial shift that we're seeing, I think that uh, is something to really keep a close eye on. Well, thank you. So we're just about out of time. Uh, in fact, probably a minute or two over. But again, for those who haven't uh, gotten the message earlier, both Simon have got our copies of Greetings from Trumpland, a fascinating read of a book. Uh, it'll give you some appreciation for, for life here in, in Australia as well. Simon, I'm going to give the final word to you because you briefly held up a paper. We've got a joint publication coming out uh, just in a week and a half, a half, State of the United States and an agenda for the Alliance, I believe. Um, any final comments on that before we wrap up, Simon? Um, no, I've, I've given that a good tease, <laughs> um, and I uh, hope we've given a good tease to Zoe's book. Um, the U.S. Study Center, we're going to do a we're going to do an event with Zoe where we'll 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 go into the book, far uh, book uh, at less book far um, the last couple of months and the next couple of months of American politics. But we look forward to that as well. Um, but it's just always a pleasure to to be doing this with with Perth. Uh, but, but especially when we've got um, someone as articulate and on the ball as, as Zoe with us, Gordon. Um, a great choice for this month's uh, joint, joint politics chat between the two centres. Well done. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. We look forward to uh, next month's instalment and anticipate there'll be plenty more to talk about uh, a, month, a month from today. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Simon. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me.